All right, so welcome everyone that's tuning into the first Let's Talk podcast. Just to give you a bit of an introduction, I'm the head of events, Matt, and with me is the coordinator for events and education, Caitlin. And today we are introducing to you none other than the brilliant Juka Veldis from now Monash University, the coordinator for the Global Challenges course. And the both of us know Juka very well, as we are both part of the Global Challenges course, and we have spent a year under Juka's tutelage. Everyone say hello. It's a pleasure to be here, Matt. Thank you for the invite. <laughs> no worries. It's going to be super exciting. Yeah, exactly. And um, just to give you a bit of a background, normally we run some workshops and we run a competition for public speaking to get everyone involved in some science communication. But obviously, with the circumstances, we can't really do that this year. So we're trying some different stuff out. We're going to do a few podcasts with some notable members of the science communication field. And we're going to try some other things. So we're going to do a Kahoot quiz, which I'm sure everyone will be excited about. And you can win a prize of that. That's exactly right. Anyway, so Juka, the first thing I wanted to ask briefly was we heard through the grapevine that you were delivering you were doing some bike ride for a special cause would you mind telling us about that I was doing a bike ride for a special cause yes further to the situation we find ourselves in uh, COVID-19 related it means that this year's Global Challenges students haven't been able to pick up their hoodies Uh, they haven't had the usual camp at the start of year and one of the things that I wanted to do uh, and I could legally do because exercise is still within the bounds of uh, what is feasible is a bike ride to hand deliver at a socially appropriate distance all the different hoodies. So we've done about a third of the class so far, so I've got uh, quite a few kilometers to go yet. And uh, unfortunately, I won't be getting to some of uh, the students in, in Queensland or all the way up to Ballarat. Uh, but in and around Melbourne, we're, we're hoping to uh, see, see each other in 3D, if only temporarily. Yeah, that's awesome. Another thing I wanted to briefly ask was, given the whole, the, the current circumstances, what's your, well, being from an anthropological background, what's your take on the whole, you know, human response and how it's all panned out? I find myself sort of moving between the, uh, the anthropologist in me that is just so interested and this amazing natural experiment that we have and sometimes I feel a little bit um, like you know the scientist that also loses track of you know what they're what they're studying there's the, the huge emotion and the economic and personal impact that you can't can't deny but at the same time it is this amazing social experiment to see what's going on right so one of the things that I'm loving is as I walk around my neighborhood is the amount of teddy bears poking their heads out of windows because there's the, the teddy bear hunt that's going on so there is in this microcosm there there is this positive uh, human communality and and playfulness that's coming through. I've never seen so many dogs. I've never seen so many people walk down my street, and that's that's wonderful. So it it also shows that actually as humans and 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 we were actually pretty good at shifting behavior. What will be interesting to see is how long we can do that in the long run, right? So we know that after about six weeks, so the data from Europe is showing that after about six weeks, it it becomes much harder, right? So initially there's the novelty aspect. And in the same way that the novelty aspect of Zoom has worn off for a lot of people, so too the, the other barriers. But yeah, you know, what, what's my take on it? You know, it, it fills me with real positivity in terms of what the human spirit can mean and how people can come together. I think the One World concert that was uh, playing just yesterday is a really good example of, of that. But also there's, a, I guess, a little bit of frustration with, with, with our human cooperative behavior that in the face of a pandemic, suddenly governments and politicians and, and communities and institutions can come together. And that's great. Like I couldn't applaud that more, but that it takes a pandemic to 
do that, right? And so my real hope as, as both an anthropologist and a scientist is, is that as we move forward out of this pandemic, for example, that we maintain that cooperation to, for example, transition into a low carbon green economy, because we clearly can see that when needed, all of us can work together. No, that's really understandable. Going back to the start, our first question for you is, how did you become interested in science? I really enjoyed that question, in part because uh, reflecting on it, I never saw myself, particularly as somebody that was massively just interested in science. As a as a kid, I loved reading, but that was often historical fiction books, and, and, and fiction books were my big thing. Throughout school, I would say that the, the arts and humanities were as strong as, as my interest in the sciences. And I think moving into university, one of the reasons I I chose such a broad subject area is archaeology and anthropology. So both across the social, biological and, and, and historical was because I could never quite make my mind up. And I love the interconnections between the, the, the worlds that are sometimes separated, I think very artificially. For me, I, I guess if, if I had to, if I was forced and said, you know, what made you interested in science? I would say that that's the natural world. I always had a deep love of understanding systems, natural systems, um, animal uh, behavior, and, and, and integrally, of course, also human behavior. Sort of building off that, how did you get to where you are now? Can you talk us through a bit your career path? One of the things that I feel very privileged about is that as a as a kid, and actually all the way from zero through to the age of 18, I moved around every three to three years or so, uh, just by chance because of my parents' work. And that meant that I moved uh, notably between the Netherlands, the United Kingdom and the US and also within those countries. And that movement really embedded in me an appreciation, I think, um, before I was even consciously aware of this concept of culture and different behavior patterns. But that difference um, and indeed the similarities that you see across different places. So even when I ended up in countries where I couldn't speak the language, or especially then, I realized that, um, you know, observing how people are acting, I was really focused on, on body language, for example. Uh, when I was six, I moved to an English to England, an English school, and I, I spoke like yes and no, and that was it. And the rest before it became sign language. And so th- there was this magical mystery tour of, you know, learning about new things. And we've touched a bit upon this a little bit, you know, most recently in Australia, um, having some of um, the students explain to me what the difference is between between na yeah and yeah na and uh, you know acronyms like that there's there's an acronym for everything like what is a tradie what is a sparky only in australia you know do do you have these these terms and some of them are fairly obvious but it's this very rich experiential opportunity um to explore and i i think if if you know how did i get um, to, to where I am is because I, I think I've always loved adventure. So I've, I've loved the unknown. I've loved that challenge and moving around different countries and also different school systems. And I think looking back now for me as an individual, and I'm sure it wouldn't suit everyone, but for me as an individual, it allowed me to, to, to thrive in every place. Remember that I'm old enough that there was no Facebook, there was no social media. So things didn't follow me either. So in every place I, I could be, not that I was conscious of this, but in some ways be a bit Machiavellian, all the stupid mistakes I'd made, all the stupid things I'd said, all the bad grades I'd had, they didn't really follow me around, right? So if I got a bad grade, it was like, well, she's just moved from the Netherlands, her English isn't as strong, or she's just come from the US, the system is different there. So I don't think I was a subject to perhaps some of the subconscious bias that might might come in from, from teachers. And so 
that landscape really worked in my favor. And and of course, you know, I can talk I could talk a lot about all the other career steps, quote unquote, that I did or all the specific technical areas, but really I think what it boils down to, I got to where I was because I I think I was forced from an early age to constantly be adapting. And that meant not because I was so naturally so great at it, but I, I through time I just did that a lot. So it didn't scare me, and I've always been seeking out that adventure of the of the new and different areas as a result. Yeah, it must be a really good learning curve to go through at a young age, which would obviously put you in a good place now. And another question that I've got is that you know through all this time, if you had to pick a favorite part or a favorite step that you took. Would you be able to pick a favorite part? Uh, that's super hard, Matt. That's a very exciting. I can love, understand. I love. I, no, 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 no. I, I love where I'm. I, I, I absolutely adore where I am now. I think if if you force me to answer that question, I think what it would come down to that it was my time working for a relatively small charity called Chelten Festivals, uh, where I was also in charge of managing the international fame lab competition. And the reason I say that is because the charity had a science festival, a classical music festival, a literature festival, and a jazz festival. So in the office, I was surrounded by artists, scientists, producers, creators, musicians, and, and so forth. So the the opportunity there to work with people who thought so incredibly different to me really helped sort of broaden that worldview. And it was just so, it's such an exciting place to be I mean there was never enough money and it was boom and bust but every nobody there was there for the money they were all there because they're passionate about what they did and you'd hear things being shouted across the office going Juka where are we going with dinosaurs Hitler and gas or you know something else and it, like the most insane combinations but everybody would know oh yeah because we've got that program for the kids on dinosaurs and then there's the psychological effects of this and that that we'll be talking about and it required that integrative interdisciplinary thinking. And I think that is what draws everything that I love together. And one of the reasons I love uh, working at uh, with the Global Challenges Program, because it breaks down any of those traditional boundaries, discipline boundaries, which I think are, are actually an obstacle to how we solve the world's problems. And and in that microcosm of that small charity running all these these events and, and, and that creative thinking that was required, that was epitomized in, in that space. Yeah, totally. And I guess living with such diversity like that, you must really love having having it now and you must consider it an essential part of your, your job, I guess. This is where the, the, the education focus of my role really comes to the fore. So the fact that on the one hand, yesterday I was focused in on leadership tactics and looking at different leadership styles. And on Friday, I was focused in on uh, design by nature's innovation. So I was working on some of the biomimicry stuff, actually, that you and uh, you and the rest of the t uh, your cohort will be doing in, in due course. That diversity... I absolutely love. And and in that sense, you know, I, I really enjoyed uh, my time as a more focused researcher, but I, I thrive at the interconnected spaces across sectors. Well, our next question was going to be about FameLab, but you've sort of already covered that. But is was there any like favorite memory maybe from that time? Yeah, talk us through talk us through FameLab. Yeah, no, absolutely. So FameLab, and unlike the name belies itself. So FameLab, the name comes uh, and, and sometimes conjures up something a little bit more artificial than what it actually is. But it it comes from a spin-off of what was uh, in the UK Fame Academy. So that was a sort of your classic celebrity showground. And it was developed by Cheltenham Festivals and later expanded across the, 
the planet by way of the British Council who ran uh, this science communication training and competition hand in hand with country partners. So the goal was uh, effectively threefold. So the first goal was to enhance supporting and training researchers to communicate their science effectively. And I think there was no surprise that this uh, had its roots in, in the UK where obviously the BBC science units and so forth had, had quite a strong influence and there was quite a big acceptance of having science accessible in society. But there were also some really notable things that happened, which for, for example, we had mad cow disease, we had the MMR scandal. So that was the, the link between vaccines and autism. And at some point it was clear to, to government and public societies that there was so much misinformation around. And that part of the problem was that perhaps some scientists, because they were never receiving training in terms of communicating that science, they were sticking to their specialist disciplines, which effectively allowed the misinformation to spread because people with a vested interest and, and the bloggers and the, the, the gossip magazines could push that out. And you know, whenever a scientist uh, was uh, contacted, because science in itself is such a specialized thing and people might say, ah, oh, well, you know, that's not quite my research area. And of course, if nobody, it's, it's a bit like asking somebody to drive a car if they've never received training in it. You know, the researchers had been receiving a lot of support for, for research and publishing and so forth, but not necessarily communicating to, to the public. And as the speed of uh, the, the scientific developments rose, of course, there was, was this very clear need to develop those skill sets. And this is where FameLab's origins are. So it wasn't about being famous. It's about how do we provide training in a fun and accessible way? I guess if you were to take that a step further and just to put it in, in, in simple words, what makes science communication so important? The way I look at this is if you're trying to talk about science and, and again, perhaps also that the current situation, the, the coronavirus situation is a really, really useful one here. What we need to recognize is for people to be able to accept and change their behavior in such a phenomenally drastic way, you need a population to have a level of trust in science. And in order to have trust in science, there needs to be an acceptance of the scientific process and an understanding of that process. And I think without science communication, that bit is crucially missing. It would be a bit like asking people to eat a completely new food stuff without any knowledge of where it came from or what ingredients are in it, right? So that's that's how I how I think about that. And, and for me, this isn't a top-down process, right? So I think that, that this is a very much a community process that is, that is driven also by curiosity and intrigue. For me, there's a huge association between the exploration that we encourage in, for example, our educational system and in terms of where you see science presented all around you and people's interest in that. So again, just to give put that in context, one of the things at the Chelton Science Festival that we had, we always had a discovery zone that was for, for kids and it would be super full. And at some point, one of the things that the organizers started noticing is that there were a lot of adults on the fringes and some of the feedback they were saying, they were receiving from those adults, every now and then was like, oh, it's great to be here. I learned so much. I hadn't realized that all of this was going on. I thought I wasn't interested in science. You know, they might've not gotten science or they did badly in terms of marks at school and they just didn't engage. And one thing that at some point started feeding through is that adults were asking for a zone without all these kids so they could have the same hands-on experiences, but not have all these, because in the presence of young kids, the adults feel like they should know it all. So there was an uncomfortable part there. And 
the the organizers realize actually what we need is a discovery zone but then for adults and that's exactly what they built the, the minimum age was normally 14 years of age and it allowed all of these the, 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 these people so trying to pull away this idea that science is something that you do at school rather than this is part of lifelong learning I think is really really important and you see that now so for example one of the ways that you can see in terms of uh, good science communication is that in a lot of press or uh, popular science writing and, and news articles people won't be describing the term gene anymore but if you look at the late 1990s early 2000s there was always this is a packet of information you know you had the taglines to try and explain what a gene was that is now part of our culture and is is as common as the word bread nearly right and so I think this is the role of you know good science communication is not only fun curious and so forth it's not this top-down process where people are forced to take in a bunch of information it's 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 about the excitement of what's out there and having a scientifically informed population that has the power and agency to make decisions over things like, okay, do we support uh, social distancing? Do I adhere to that? It really helps break down that idea of science as a really cold, purely research-based. It's about creativity and it's about letting loose that inner kid that just wants to know how everything works. Exactly. Yeah, and I really like that idea that it's for everyone, you know? I suppose that's why it's also important that we keep doing this and that we get out solid, actual information. There's so much out there, especially on social media, and it comes to the point where a lot of people just might not trust anything they see because they don't know what to trust because they don't know the science behind it. One of, I think, the challenges we have is that science and arts and humanities and languages, they're often so compartmentalized. I hinted towards this earlier on. That's also problematic because there's, if you asked me, Juke, if you could only mandate one class in high school, what would that be? For all my love of, for example, English literature and science, I would actually say neither of those two. I'd say philosophy and ethics. In terms of the structures of thinking and what does critical thinking look like, the scientific method is, is the best method that we have at hands of, of testing the world around us. It is an imperfect method and it is and can be subject to, to human bias. So in association with the communication piece, which is absolutely there, and that communication piece to some extent is maybe also an accessibility piece, there is also another component which is interrelated, is, is recognizing, for example, the cultural influence on my thinking, of how I ask questions, of how I structure my thoughts and so forth. And I think science communication naturally warrants and needs that broader platform of, of questioning. And for me, that is, you know, philosophy, ethics and so forth as part of that world. They, they are all interconnected in, in terms of how we make sense and, and, and how we shape the view of, of our world around us. Yeah, exactly right. And if we're taking this content to our listeners at home, hopefully they're at home, I would ask, what are your tips for, you know, up and coming science communicators to stand out or, you know, to be an expert science communicator? Because, you know, there's definitely quite a bit to it. I'm really conscious that you were looking for some really punchy suggestions of what people could 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 take away with. And I'm really struggling to answer that because the landscape is broad. I think you need to be really passionate about it. It, it, it is a 
a space where a lot of people are passionate. So to stand above the noise isn't necessarily straight straightforward. And in my experience, a lot of people build their science communication expertise and their science communication career by, uh, you know, working at museums as uh, science presenters. Working, you know, in, in England, you might, you know, if you get a role at the Royal Institution or the Museum of Science Interest in, in Industry, the, the Science Museum in London, those are naturally spaces where you're going to be interacting with the, the public a lot. Those for people who perhaps more in the early stages of the of their career have been quite good avenues to go out and explore the world of science communication and, and uh, or science writing in a space where that isn't everything that your career is dependent on. It's I think it does happen, but I think it's very hard to go wake up one day and go, okay, I'm now going to be a professional science podcast and this is how I'm going to make my living because it, it you, there's so much experience that needs to be built up in, in that way. I, I, I hope that answers at least part of uh, your, your question. No, for sure. That's definitely an, an integral part of it. Our next question was, what would you say is the best way to get involved in the science communication field? And more specifically looking at undergraduates, is there any suggestions you have specifically for them? Besides Let's Talk. Yeah, check <laughs> us out. What else can you do to get some experience before looking into careers and stuff? Yeah, and absolutely. So let's talk, uh, and and not just because you've invited me, absolutely getting involved in organizations, whether that's Let's Talk or FameLab, getting involved in organizations, competitions that promote and support science communication are so valuable, not just before the, the workshops, which are, which are great, but for building up your network and community of other passionate communicators. Um, so for example, I've seen very successful partnerships between people where they start doing maybe a double act with Pint of Science in, in the pub, right? And one thing leads to another, and then they start working in a ra their university radio show and so forth, and they build up this portfolio. So I think uh, as a undergraduate student, I think building up this portfolio, because it will also help you pinpoint, I was in my previous answer to my, the previous question, I was building up this very broad landscape. And the reason I, I did that is because it was really hard for me to see as an undergraduate just how complex that landscape was. I was like, oh, well, I'm a researcher and therefore I communicate my research. Only later did I realize just how many different components of the science communication world there were and how many different careers in that. But regardless of whether you're for applying at a job at a press department for a university, at a science museum or at a local newspaper, they're all want to, going to want to see evidence of that experience and that portfolio. You know, you can't do everything, but having, and you know, we're recording this interview on Audacity, right? Having some experience with doing some podcasting and also being able to show for perhaps some uh, written science pieces, that's going to be an absolute huge benefit to all of the aforementioned locations that you might be looking longer term to work in, right? Similarly, whether you are avid about it or not, having at least one social media account so that you can show that you are also capable of communicating in, in different forums is also really important. Keep track of that portfolio, know the community, know the landscape, yeah, and we love networking. Network, guys. It's all about who you know. No matter what uni you're at, get in touch with your science clubs, join them, go to their nights, meet people, get emails. Get on their LinkedIn. Yeah, the whole shebang. Another question that I've got, I've really wanted to know, how was your time at the United Nations Climate Change Conference? 
So COP, uh, COP25, uh, that was ultimately held in Madrid in, in Spain after, of course, uh, the riots in Chile meant that they, they actually moved the international meeting. I can say with no doubt that it is both one of the most surreal, positive, but also frustrating places I have ever spent time. If you imagine a place where you put together every industry uh, from mining to energy to to transport alongside every single country with its own interests in, in resource distribution and climate change mitigation and all levels within that, as well as a whole bunch of political and activist figures in, in one big melting pot, and then try and imagine them all coming to a consensus on the incredibly broad-ranging uh, series of implemented measures that we're going to need to globally work together to tackle climate change. Uh, you get the idea. It was utterly surreal. So for one thing, for example, one thing I didn't expect was just the sheer number of Americans that were walking around. Because, of course, America had pulled out of the climate change negotiations due to Trump. What was the result? The result was that the Americans who nominally had their own country pavilions, so all the countries have their own pavilions. So there were politicians from particularly the Democratic Party walking around quite freely at COP25. And I thought that was really uh, fascinating. I hadn't expected uh, to see Nancy Pelosi walking around. Um, I mean, Greta was there and in and among the whole hoo-ha. But more interesting than, than seeing so many people fawn over Greta, which, uh, you know, again, is, is, is both, okay, great, we've, we've got somebody that's brought attention to it. But ideally, those journalists would be focusing on the issues rather than, you know, it, it moved into that celebrity culture aspect, right? And I, I guess that makes me slightly uncomfortable because sure enough, when you look at the pictures of Greta at just COP24 the year before, she's basically sitting with herself by, with a placard, right? She's sitting by herself with a placard and doesn't have this whole press train. So it was really positive. I said, you know, positive was one of the words in terms of the change and the focus that you saw from some elements of society and, and countries and absolutely the youth movement, like the most positive thing being there is the amount of youth and, and the activists I met, met there recognizing the, the incredible bravery and courage of some of the young people to speak out. That was hugely positive. Uh, the frustration that I, I, I felt and saw of the Pacific nations who are dealing against these juggernauts uh, around them who are uh, continuing for economic reasons, business as usual, but who are tied in via aid, right? So there's a lot of Pacific nations who receive aid from, you know, places like China, Australia, the US, and have a lot ideally to push and pull at, at these negotiations, but are also hamstrung because they depend in other sectors of their economy on the nations who are trying to push back against uh, more stringent climate change changes. And, and how else was that? I, I have to say it felt weird as a as somebody who's just moved into Australia to be representing Australia. Um, that that was really hard. And I say that as a as a Dutch national, uh, the Netherlands has, you know, uh, a lot to explain and plenty of steps to go as well. But one of the things I find hard is that I was now essentially representing a nation uh, that was put in the same basket as Saudi Arabia, the US and Brazil in terms of its climate change um, approach, its uh, 
attempt to trade like a developing world country, because remember on the Kyoto 1995 agreement, Australia successfully argued that it should be able to be counted as a developing country uh, and therefore mine more than other developing countries. And because they haven't quite gotten to the level that they would have been allowed to, they were trying to say, well, we should have some free credits. So they were doing a lot of wrangling with these credits in the same way that the US and other countries were doing as well. And and that, you know, that is then offset against incredible scientific ingenuity and, and the work being done. As a matter of fact, the, fir- the earliest work on the link between humidity and, and bushfires uh, was being done in the 70s and 80s by Australian scientists. You know, they were one of the earliest ones to highlight, actually, we should look at the effect of climate change on different sectors of the Australian economy. You have a chance. So if you can get yourself... So if you're interested, you know, this Australian Youth Climate Coalition, for example, that's a great place to to learn more about things like COP. And there are also youth tickets. So there are opportunities and, and have a look on the UNFCCC website. There are opportunities for you to attend uh, as an observer as well. It was the most confusing, but as I said, positive, frustrating and, and also amazing uh, experience to be there. And it really made me reflect on, okay, what can I do in this perceived chaos? What is my piece of work? What is my scope of influence? And to also be comfortable with that, to accept and, and that I'm doing my bit in this case, in the science communication and in the education space in the very best way that I can, because it is also very easy to be utterly overwhelmed and, and honestly fairly depressed um, by being at, at one of those those meetings. It's yeah, I use this word too much, I know, but it, it really was a roller coaster from hour to hour, day to day. Yeah, no, that's very understandable. And was there any outcome? There are always outcomes. The question is, okay, how big and how binding are those outcomes? So the big one is going to be COP26 in Glasgow. So that's happening this year. Uh, what space that's going to be happening in it is, 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 as of yet, a little bit unclear. But basically, they were doing the groundwork uh, in and around, for example, a lot of questions around carbon trading and, and how carbon credits are, are going to work and what commitments they um, uh, different nations uh, should or shouldn't make as a result and, and they, they were asking questions like should the biggest economies and the biggest polluters pay I think resoundingly if you ask most people they would be disappointed by COP25 to a degree because it you know a lot of the the steps that were needed to hopefully get really strong implementation in the Glasgow in the upcoming Glasgow conference weren't quite as stringent as as people hoped for. I think from a personal perspective, I was happy to see so much more drive and focus from indigenous groups and also young people who were there really, really reminding people of this isn't just, you know, some nice political showboating grounds. Uh, and there's times when it felt a little bit by that. There's there's real change that needs to be made here. Looking back on the conference just as a whole, you've got this amalgamesh of, you know, different people from different places. Was there any, like, specific challenges related to just the communicating with people from different cultures who have different traditions or, you know, just language barriers? I think language barriers are perhaps less of a barrier than the cultural nuances that are perhaps not translatable through the English language. So there are there's that aspect. And I think certainly as somebody who's come out very fresh, uh, come in very fresh as an outsider, what I my challenge was trying to distinguish while I was sitting in on, on meetings, how many 
considerations there were below the surface of the iceberg. So if the tip of the iceberg is climate change that they're tackling, how much else is going on between these countries? Because economically, they're also in a trade deal. So what is what is quite telling at these meetings is, is you've got the discussions at the top, which is a climate change, climate change mitigation. And for each country and each institution and all the individuals involved, there's a whole load of other knock-on effects and connections and threads that tie people into obligations that are actually quite hard to see behind the scenes. And, and you really need experts from all those different countries and cultures and, and businesses to understand, okay, so they might like to do this, but they're not going to do this before because they've actually got an election coming up and this is going to be two contentions election issue. So even though they ultimately want to move towards this more positive approach to climate change, the chances are that they won't do that before the elections pass in a year and a half time. And that means that we now don't have a majority here and here and here, which means these other countries won't get on board either. I'm making that up, but you get the idea. It may seem like a simple yes or no, you know, you believe in it or you don't, so you're going to make action on it, but there's so much else going on. And so the what, what, what is powerful there, and I think I've seen a lot of science communicators tackle this really well, the, the, the number of variables that make COVID-19 such a complex situation for, for our governance structures, for, for our politicians, are very much the same as climate change, right? So everybody has slightly different variables. The geography of the place, you know, Australia being a continent, great. So, okay, preventing people from coming in is, is relatively easier than if you've got five land borders. All those sort of things have an influence. And, and the climate change, the, the, the debates and, 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 and sort of the meetings on how to mitigate it are very much the same, even within the same country. I mean, the, the, as, as, as with COVID-19, there's a hundred different opinions as to how people should proceed. So in some ways, that complexity that we're dealing with now hopefully also makes people a little bit more comfortable with the ambiguity and the uncertainty of situations without necessarily saying, well, because we don't have the exact answer, we can't act. Because everybody agrees that we need to act for COVID-19, but relatively, and I mean this incredibly respectfully to the thousands and thousands of people who've lost their lives, but COVID-19 is probably going to be a blip on the radar unless we tackle climate change in a appropriate manner. I guess for anyone listening and for undergraduates, this really shows science communication is not just communicating science. You could focus on, if you have other interests or other areas of study, there is a lot of ways you can communicate science with the links to the many just aspects of society that is very much involved in. I would even go one step further, Caitlin, and say that your ability as a science communicator might even be stronger if you are also adept at, I don't know, covering things like economics or or other fields that might otherwise have seemed disparate because your ability to synthesize and make connections I think becomes much, much stronger in, in that context. And to be a good communicator is also to understand your audience. So even the best scientific story and the scientific data that you're uh, explaining, if you are not clued into where people are in their mind uh, and how they're feeling, then that story could land co- completely differently. And that's that's something not to, to underestimate. Is is society ripe for for a certain message? Is it is it ready to talk about uh, th- this? And uh, one good example for that in the early 2000s when the Genome Project, uh, Human Genome Project and the results of that were published, one of the things that happened is that in some of the short interviews with scientists, 
they were saying, well, once we've got the human genome, like, you know, we can start looking at cancers and we can cure this and we can potentially tackle that and so forth. And of course, 10 years later, people are like, well, you got the human genome and you still haven't fixed all of the cancer, right? And that was a disjunction between the scientists who were super excited because the human genome was such an amazing feat and absolutely helped like astronomically change their view of, 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 of disease and what they could do with it. But somewhere in that message, what got completely lost is that it was still going to be decades and decades and decades before we tackled everything. The human genome didn't mean, magically mean that the future of disease was disease no more. And, and that's something I mean, right? You've, you've got to be aware of, okay, hang on, is the public interpreting this or where are they at? And, and are the scientists super excited, but where are they actually at? And what does this mean? Those connections are also really important. You know, I think we might take this opportunity to wrap it up. Juka, thank you so much for your time. We've appreciated it so much. It's been great to talk to you and great to hear from you. And I'm sure there's a lot to take from this for anyone listening at home as well. Yeah, no, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you so much, Juka. You've been really wonderful. Fabulous. Yeah, no, thank you very much. It's been it's been a real pleasure. And I'm, I can't wait to uh, hear future podcast episodes as well. I think it's, it's, Les Dork is doing an amazing, amazing job. And I, it's always been a pleasure over the last uh, three years to be part of part of your events and to, to share the opportunities uh, with students and, and friends. On that note, make sure you tune into the next episode of the podcast if you're listening right now, because we'll be talking to Jenny Martin, the uh, Deputy Vice Chancellor from the University of Wollongong and another amazing academic and scientist. We also have a Kahoot coming out pretty soon. Check that out. Check out our socials. And if you have anyone that you want us to interview, send us an email. Let us know. So yeah, on that note, I think we might leave it there. Thank you. And uh, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for being with us. And goodbye.